Welcome swimmers and swimmers. I'm today's host, Garrett McCaffrey. And joining us today is the 2019 ASCA and Golden Goggles Coach of the Year. From 1987 to 2006, as well as 2015 to 2019, he's been on the USA Swimming National Team Coaches List. He's also a member of the ASCA Hall of Fame. He's the head coach of Riptide Swim Team, Mike Parado, and this is the Swim Swam Podcast. Mike, thanks so much for making the time for us today. Hi, Garrett. Thank you. Really uh, look forward to today and uh, having a chat with you. Me too. I really look forward to it as well. And, you know, we have a lot of things in common, not only the coaching side, but also um, a common media major. Let's start at the beginning um, of your career, I guess. And at Eastern Illinois, you swam and you were communications and media major. Um, when you first started that major, what were you hoping to uh, to grow up to be, I guess? Right. <laughs> um when I was at school, I was on the school newspaper there at EIU, and and um, they had a, a a daily, a twenty-page daily that normally got the AP and UPI awards. And I really wanted to be part of that. I liked writing. Um, I took a lot of journalism courses, of course, um, and I I essentially wanted to be hooked up with a newspaper, um, specifically in sports. Um, so at the school, they had a um, a job placement center. And you would go there and they would, you know, try to help you line up with some internships and things like that. And, you know, what were your choices in order? And of course, I wanted to, you know, talk about sports media. And then down the line a little bit, I, I put swim coach because I had had some experience doing some of that at the summer club uh, level and uh, at EIU a little bit with the club team. And I, I, um, <laughs> I decided um, at some point, and I could tell you how that happened. Um, I came out of college and I got a, a job. My parents were living in Florida. I got a job in West Palm beach with a boxing promotions company. And my job was to be a liaison between, um, the, the with the radio stations and TV stations and newspapers and the boxing community. And, um, that was quite the experience for me. I specifically remember going down to Miami Convention Center to cover uh, boxing matches. Um, it was it was wild and crazy, and that was a time when you sat at ringside, and this was nineteen circa nineteen eighty one, right? And I'm sitting there with my typewriter because that's what we had then. <laughs> um, so anyway, I had that job for a while, and. Um, we were promoting a very big bout that was coming to West Palm beach. And you may not know these boxers, but there were 10 different boxing uh, matches that were on this card, boxing card. And um, a headliner was a heavyweight uh, fight with Jimmy Young, who was one of the top heavyweights at that time. Um, and so I guess in training, Jimmy Young had, had broken his hand or his thumb in training. So the guy that hired me says, um, all right, well, the card's been canceled because that's the big headliner. And um, because of that, no one in the office got paid. Well, I needed to, I needed to get paid. I needed to pay my rent. Um, 
I walked out of the building and I went down to the street level and I went to a phone booth, remember those? <laughs> and I called up Jack Nelson, who was the head swim coach at Fort Lauderdale Swim Club, that, and I knew him. And um, I called him up, I said, Jack, is, uh, do, you have a, do you have any jobs? He says, I don't really have any jobs for you, but I know there's some in the area. And then, and he helped me out. And so I started coaching <laughs> and, and um, I found my way um, eventually up to Boston. Uh, I worked with the Gator Swim Club for a couple of years. And then in the uh, fall of 1984, um, my wife, Amy and I um, took the job at Seacoast Swimming. It was called the Seacoast Stingrays at the time. And um, within a year, I think we changed the team to the Seacoast Swimming Association. So we changed the name. Um, my wife started a diving program. We had an assistant coach. His name was Phil Baker. Um, he, he coached our junior level group. He was a triathlete as well. He coached our master's program and I was the senior coach. So there's three of us at this program. And Phil went on to coach what's called the Portland Porpoise Swim Club in Portland, Maine. That club eventually turned out Ian Crocker. So pretty cool. Wow. That's a, that's a short story all the way from the time I graduated till the time I got to Seacoast. Yeah. At what point did you kind of give up on the journalism piece of it? Um, as soon as I walked downstairs to that phone booth. <laughs> So I had, um, I pretty much, um, I, I, I love swimming and I loved working with swimmers and um, I never went back into the sports media area. But before I got to the sports, to that job um, in um, West Palm Beach, that's a boxing promotions company, my internship was at a Philadelphia radio station. Um, so I was an intern there. That was my last semester at EIU. I worked at this radio station. First sports intern they've had working for a gentleman named Merrill Reese, who is the play-by-play -play man for the Philadelphia Eagles. And he still is. I think he's close to 80 if he's not 80 already. Um, and I got to cover professional basketball, football, uh, ice hockey, uh, that particular year, the NC2A tournament, the final four was in, in the city. Um, and that was an amazing experience for me. I learned a lot. And the boxing promotions company job was my first and last position in that area. Yeah. I mean, I could see how you could get drawn in that direction just based on those events alone. But I think the coaching um, bug, so to speak, had always been in you because you, you swam for a bunch of legendary coaches. Um, how much do you think that impacted your decision there? And then if you don't mind kind of going through Don Sonia, Bruce Weigo, Paul Bergen, Mike, uh, Mike Burton as kind of influences on your coaching right now, if you could just talk a little bit about your experience as a swimmer with them. Absolutely. Uh, I think the, my first experience, um, is the area where I grew up in Middle Atlantic area in the Philadelphia area. And there were just great teams and coaches. Frank Keefe was at Suburban Swim Club eventually and it went to Foxcatcher. Dick Schulberg was at Germantown Academy. George Breen was at Vesper Boat Club. Bob Matson was at Wilmington Aquatic Club. And I got to see these great coaches with their great swimmers um, as an age group kid and eventually as a senior swimmer. Um, Don Sonia 
I had a number of age group coaches at, at a place called the Philadelphia Aquatic Club. It was a rather big team in Mid-Atlantic. And um, eventually got into Coach Sonia's group. Um, Coach Don was a fun guy. He was awesome. We worked hard. Um, but he was always challenging us. To, I mean, I, I think when, when I swam there, he this was the situation. It was a 55-yard pool. The girls... The female swimmers were at one end of the pool with Mary Williams. Um, her husband owned the team and she was a great swim coach and she coached the women. And at the other end of the pool were the guys in the senior group. And he had a couple lanes of 11 and 12s, a couple lanes of 13, 14, a couple lanes of 15 and 16 and 17, 18. And, and so it seemed like every other day or every third day, he would, he would get us on the block and time us. And so he, he got the little guys on the blocks and we were, we were the 12 and unders. And this is my first experience with coach Sonia. And he's walking up to everybody, asking them their best time. And he comes up to me and he says, Parada, what is your best time in the hundred free? And I, you know, said one Oh one, like I was a little embarrassed. He goes, no one in my group goes over a minute and a hundred free. So we did, we did the time trial. Damn 57. I went to 57. The next week there was a swim meet. I went to swim the hundred free, 101. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if he told me the truth or he just scared me to death that day. <laughs> I mean, was, it seems like, you know, other than the scary to death part, I mean, you say he's fun. You say you got up and raced um, quite often. A lot, a lot. I mean, it, it, this is totally a stereotypical perspective, but that doesn't seem typical for the coaches of his era. Um, there, in between all of that, there were 10, 400 IMs. <laughs> so there it in is. between there getting it up is. on the block and racing, it seemed every other day, there, there was some good work in between those days. <laughs> Talk about some of the other coaches that you, uh, were influenced sure. by. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, uh, Bruce Weigo, um, he came to the team. Uh, I think, um, I think, uh, uh, Mrs. Williams coached us for a while after Don Sonia. And, um, and then Bruce came in for a short amount of time. And his influence was more on the sprinting side. Um, he, he came from the New Jersey area, a local guy. Um, he, he was a younger coach for sure. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, he really helped me in my, in my fly swimming at that time. And a lot of things were, again, sprint oriented. And um, um, you know, just kept a great relationship with Bruce all the way, all through the years. Um, his, his, especially with his time at the, uh, swimming hall of fame, uh, being there uh, and he's still there and he still writes about swimming history, which is really great. So I love speaking with Bruce when I get a chance to do that. Um, the other, uh, coach is uh, on the other, I'll talk about Mike Burton first. Uh, Mike was on the other side of, of, uh, what Bruce was doing and Mike, was a tough guy. I mean, he, um, we know about Mike and his gold medal swims in the 1500 in 1968, 1972. He's also a gold medal winner in the 400 free in 68 in Mexico. And um, he came to us, I think in his late twenties, maybe he was 30 years old. Uh, he was a school teacher uh, when he actually set the world record in, in 72 um, in the 1500. And, uh, but he came to us and there was a lot of freestyle that went on. There was a, a great influence from the coaches that he had, uh, namely uh, Sherm Shavar uh, from Arden Hills. 
And um, we just did a lot of hard training. And you had to be a tough guy in his group. He really wanted you to, to get after it. And there were specific sets that were, you know, they, they were have-tos. So there was a lot of fast freestyle going on and a lot of it. So it's the 70s, right? If, um, if a lot was good, more was better. And we did a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the legends of, you know, his Olympic race and all the other, um, you know, highlights of his career. Were you aware of that as he came um, to yeah, coach you absolutely. all? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And he was, um, you know, we were all starstruck, I think, you know, when he walked on the pool deck with us. But he was a great guy, down to earth guy. He really preached hard work. That's what that was a big deal. Um, he, he was. Um, amazingly generous. I mean, I remember him coming out with some of his Olympic gear and I remember walking away with one of his uh, Olympic bags that he had, that he had been given and things like that. So he was, he was really a, a, a great influence and, and, and motivation to, Hey, this, here's a guy that was Olympian. He knew what to do. Um, he had great coaches that helped, you know, that, that um, helped him become that level. And um, Mike kind of uh, taught us in that same way. Let's move forward to your, your time at Seacoast. And well, I, can tell you, I can tell you about Mr. Bergen, too. Okay. I, to I didn't know if that. you wanted to skip over that part or if, if not. No, no, yeah. no, no, not at all. I, okay. I, I saved that for last, actually. Please. <laughs> because um, Coach Bergen was the first coach. He came in, I want to say, 1973-74 in our program, and he helped us all become better, without a doubt. He was the first coach that I remember walking in with a plan. He had, he had a daily workout in writing for us. Um, and he challenged us like no one to that point. Mike, Mike Burton came after Paul in our, in our program, but um, he challenged us like no one else challenged us before on a daily basis. And uh, one of my fun stories from, this is the first time I'd ever experienced this. I think I was probably 15 years old at the time. And it's 4th of July, we're gonna have a 4th of July practice. And um, as we were getting into the parking lot and walking into the uh, facility door, he was standing there with a marker. And we never saw him outside in the parking lot before. He was always, he was always in the pool area, but as each, every other kid that walked in the door got a uh, uh, initials on their arm. You were either the Ben Franklins or the BFs, or you're the Thomas Jefferson's TJ. And every other kid that walked in got those initials on their arm. So we warmed up and we didn't know what was going on. We just thought, well, that's just the 4th of July thing. You know, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson's historical stuff on 4th of July. And we did about 3,000 meters warm up. And then he told us that we were doing a 10,000 for time and that we, he would score it like a cross country meet. So low score wins. So it'd be if you were first, you got one point. If you're second, it's two points, and you were swinging for your team. <laughs> so we start at the ten thousand, and all I remember thinking to myself as a fifteen year old was, all I wanted to do was, I don't know, get a hot dog and enjoy that day. <laughs> and I was getting. Uh, uh, it took a while for me to get through that ten thousand that day. Yeah, I mean, as it would most people, 10,000, <laughs> 13,000 on the day plus warm down. Happy but, but Fourth was, of July. <laughs> he was an amazingly organized coach. Um, he had, he had uh, like I said, he'd walk in with the workout and he really taught us how to break down swim races. 
So here's the splits you need to get this time. What do you need to do here? What are we going to do in practice to achieve that? And then we would go out and um, and, you, and do that process of trying to get those times. So he was he was a great coach. And then of course, we all know he moved on to Nashville and um, coach Tracy Calkins there. Yeah. And probably impacted more coaches who are successful today than most coaches in history. He's got quite the, the coaching tree too. So, um, all right, now let's kind of move forward um, to the start of probably, you know, one of the most impactful portions of your career. I mean, it was 26 years. So a huge portion of your time um, was spent in New Hampshire at Seacoast, but um, while you were developing the club and the success that, you know, the club was going towards, um, can you just talk a little bit about the early years and, and what those years look like and some of the challenges when, you know, you're a young coach and, um, you know, trying to build a team towards the greatness that eventually ended up happening? Yeah, um, my wife and I started there in 1984, the fall of 84. We were 24 and 25 years old, so we we're the head coaches of the team. And um, the, the team was pretty much a, a state team. They, had, they were in a state league, um, New Hampshire State League, Swimming League. And um, the team started um, – there were two teams that worked out of the same facility. One was called the East Coast Aquatic Club, and the other one was called the Dover Bluefins. And that, that team became the Seacoast Stingrays. And eventually when we got there, the name of the team changed to Seacoast Swimming that we had Seacoast Swimming Association. Um, we decided it would be that um, just to change um, the thought process of, of what we would like to become. And when we got there, the team had um, five practices a week from four to six. And um, you, evidently you could come anytime you wanted to during that time. It didn't matter what your age was, didn't matter what your level was. It was the opportunity to swim on a team. So I remember that within the first week or so, uh, we had this meeting outside of the pool facility on the grass. And I, I, I asked all the 10 and under, all the 10 and under sit over here, the 11 and 12 sit over here in a group, and 13 and over sit over here. And I had the parents stand behind them. And I said, all right, so here's what's going to happen. In a week or so, there's going to be a schedule of when you come to practice. So it won't be any time between Monday and Friday, that whenever you feel like it, we'll, we'll have an actual schedule. And, you know, the 10 and unders will be here three days a week. The junior group will be here, depending on their level, three or four, five times a week. And the senior group will go five or six times a week or five times a week, because we only had five at that time. We didn't have Saturdays yet. And so I explained how this would be sent out in the mail, because of course that's what we needed to do at that point. And um, at the end of that meeting, a mom came up to me and, and was very serious about, um, will my children have um, anything, will they be able to do anything else except swim? I said, well, how, how old are they? And one was 10 and one was 12. I said, well, I had mentioned that the 10 and others would do three days a week and maybe three or four for the other age. And I said, what do they do? Are they Boy Scouts? Are they into music? Is there something else that they're into? And this mom very seriously said to me, foliage. I want my kids to enjoy the foliage. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm pretty thing. sure there's at least a month and a half of that, if not more, that you can go in New England and, and see foliage. Anyway, she took her kids and 
the end result was she never came back. <laughs> she never came. So um, there were people on the team that wanted to be serious. And there were people on the team that if I can't do what I want to do, when I want to do it, I'm probably not going to stick around. Okay, you kind of bring up an interesting point. I hate to interrupt you, but you even, I, I saw that at some points you thanked your parents for letting you do multiple sports. And this is something that club teams to this day still have to deal with, especially it feels like at least that specialization has become, you know, the trendy or most important thing for kids at a very young age. Um, how do you feel about that? And has it changed since back then? No, I, for me, I think it is important. I think it's important for younger swimmers to try everything, to find out what they really like, what they're good at. Um, now, if they happen to be a swimmer and they're, they want to play low league football, or they happen to be a swimmer and they want to, I'm, I'm in the play at school, then they need to do those things. But don't forget about swimming. Remember that you're, you're coming in three days a week. Let's make sure we find a way to come in those three days a week. So we're very willing when they're younger to uh, try to accommodate the other activities that they're doing. I think it's important that they do that. We did have one young lady who I thought was a very good swimmer. Of course, and she got in my senior group and I wanted her to commit to swimming. And I found out she was a pretty good soft, softball player. And it turned out that she got a full scholarship for softball to college. Okay, good job. Who am I to say anything? That's where you should go. So, you know, you have to find out what, what people really want to get into. And, and the, but I, the philosophy is, and it's still the same today, that we do encourage other activities. Don't forget about swimming. We do want you to get through the groups. And I kind of feel like for longevity in the sport, if you're doing just swimming when you're a 10 and under, I think at some point as they get older, it, they start to want to do other things that they didn't get to do before. So do that early on instead. Teach your young kids to enjoy the sport, have fun with it, learn all the techniques and you know rules of the sport. And then um, as they get older, make more of a commitment. Awesome. I'm glad we could fit that question in. Now we can continue. You know, some of the time and space restraints um, from your early years at, at Seacoast, you even didn't ask a talk at one point about it. Um, you know, coaching with limited time and space. Um, right. I think that's a challenge that a lot of teams deal with. Um, can can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into that and what you prioritized at that point as the things that if this team's going to be successful, we have to do these things. Right. So in the beginning, we only had Monday through Friday. And um, I wanted to make sure that we were getting enough background work. But the, the rec center, the uh, recreation department would run swim lessons in the fall. And I remember one, this one particular time that they said they were running them to mid-October and that we didn't have any pool time. So um, we literally ran dry land for two hours a day, Monday through Friday, and we ended up getting some pool time at the University of New Hampshire um, on the weekends. But I, I think what's important is if you only have an hour of time in, in the pool, you know, you're going to have to make sure that you get everything you need during the week. So Make sure there's something continuous going on in one practice. Get your distance stuff done. Get some uh, endurance work done. And then on the other days, make sure that you're, you're doing some details, some skill work, and certainly some speed work. So you only have what you have. But I think anybody can make anything work. As long as you're dedicated to it and you're doing it day after day, week after week in a season, I think you can make anything work. And I think that's the mindset you really have to have. Um, you, you, you can't walk around saying, oh, woe is us. We don't have 
you know, a 50 meter pool, or we don't have, you know, two and a half hours to swim every day, or we don't have a weight room, or it doesn't really matter. You can make it work if you want to. And if you want to find a way, you can. It was very difficult getting long course time where we were during the course of the year. And um, I'll just fast forward real fast. When, when Jenny Thompson was, um, she was a qualifier for the world championships in high school. And um, on Saturdays, we would drive all the way into Rhode Island to a, uh, a public facility that was long course. And it was really about a, geez, I want to say it was a two and a half hour trip, one way to get there. So I remember uh, we would run morning practice and then I'd say to a, a group of the junior and senior national kids, hey, we're going to go take this trip down, you know, to um, Rhode Island. And so the first time we did it, we took one van full. And then the, the other kids in the, in the program or the group were saying, hey, we'd like to take that too, that trip too. And then at some point we had three full vans of swimmers traveling and the commitment was amazing. I would meet them at noontime at the short course facility. We would drive down there, do the practice, have dinner as a group. And by the time we got home, it would be close to 9 p.m. So it was a, an amazing commitment to do that, but they all wanted to do that. And so um, it's great when everybody wants to get on board like that and be part of the program. But you do, a, to, to finish this part up, you do what you need to do to be the best you can be. We had a similar situation here in Minnesota. It was very difficult getting long course time. Um, I wanted to make sure that Reagan had, uh, would keep in touch with long course training and, and that kind of stuff. So throughout the year, we might take these uh, short four day trips um, and find some long course facility that we could go to. And uh, we'd get six practices in in those days. So we'd go, uh, we'd get there on a Wednesday afternoon, have a Wednesday practice, double on Thursday and Friday, do a Saturday morning practice and then head home for that, you know, the rest of the weekend. But um, you do what you need to do. I, there's, when the meet results come out, it doesn't say at the end of the, it has your place and your name and your time. And at, at the end, it doesn't say, well, they didn't have any long course time or they didn't have any dry land time or they didn't have enough swim time. Nothing like that matters. You have to find a way to get it done. And um, again, that mindset is very important. Yeah. Um, creates a lot of time too to, you know, get to know the swimmers and for them to get to know you, especially when you're doing two and a half hour van rides both ways and dinners with the team. I mean, it's kind of an awesome bonding opportunity. What do you think those swimmers would have said about you as a coach um, in those seacoast days, just giving us a view of, you know, who you were on deck to them? I, well, I would, I would like to think that they would say that I challenged them to try to be the best they could be. And that I would um, try to help them uh, as much as I could. So I would like to think that, I would like to think that the Riptide group thinks that as well, that I'm there to try to help them. And, you know, doing something easy doesn't get the job done. Uh, I, I, I think you have to be challenged and I think you have to accept that. So I would, again, I can't answer that question exactly, but I would say, I would hope it would be that. Can we dig into that a little bit? Just cause you know, I've only been coaching for, you know, 12, 13 years. Um, and I, I feel like this generation in order to challenge them, it almost requires 
their permission first, right? They have to kind of almost buy in to a certain degree before you can really challenge them. Can can you talk about that um, approach to doing what you know you're supposed to do as a coach and motivate and challenge and push them to a certain degree? Um, how has that evolved um, from your time at Seacoast to now your time at Riptide? I, I would I would agree. I would say that time back at Seacoast in the mid '80s, where there was there was no internet going on there were no cell phones there were no you know tablets or computers going on at that point and um i think that that was the swimmers one extracurricular activity outside of school and they their most of their friends were there um we had double practices back at that time on saturdays uh, because it was very difficult for some of the kids during the week to come to the morning practices so they would get together um, after the PM practice sometimes and they'd have movie night. And I remember this one specific time, um, um, my wife and I had a, uh, our first daughter was very young. And after that practice, um, I, I think I ended up going to the grocery store to grab some milk or whatever, some groceries. And when I came back to my, our apartment, all the cars were in the parking lot. I entered our, our the, the apartment and all these shoes were, at the entranceway, and I evidently that was movie night at our house, and um, there was popcorn all over the place. And then when I walked in, they all went hi. I went hi. So, so they did get together a lot more that time. Um, your idea that that um, you the kids need you know you have to have their permission. I I think this. I think they do need to understand that they have to have some buy-in to working hard and being committed and being dedicated. Now, do I think everybody has that buy-in? Probably not. Um, it's something that, you know, you want to have, you always want to improve your individual culture. You are always working on your team culture, um, your practice culture, whatever you want to call that. Um, it's a work in progress all the time. It's not something that's just a done deal. For some kids, it is a done deal. But I think you have to keep working at it all the time. And they have to understand that consistency and hard work is part of the sport. You can't, you can't avoid that and think you're going to be better. Um, so there's normally meetings about that or individual talks about that. And again, that's an ongoing thing, I think, throughout a season all the time. Yeah. Has to. I find that it has to be something you remind them of. If it's important to them at the meet, you know, when they want that time, it's got to be important to them consistently leading up to that. And right. I find myself having to remind them of that quite a bit. Um, I, I love the story about the kids coming for movie night, but um, that's not really the only time that swimming comes home with you. I mean, being married to your co-head coach and, you know, coaching with your wife for all of these years, um, you know, that that makes it you know, a unique situation, uh, I guess, how has coaching with your wife impacted your career first? Um, I, over the years, have loved coaching with Amy. As a matter of fact, we, we coach a, a junior group at Riptide together now. We've done so for the last five years. And I really enjoy working with Amy because, number one, she is way into the kids all the time, every minute of the practice. She's concerned about what they're doing and how things are being done. And she's always, always motivating and encouraging. 
at the end of the practice, there's always a little meeting before we, we do a little team share and they, they break to go home. But th there's always that encouragement. And for that reason, I really love coaching with her. Uh, she's a great leader in that way. So we've never had a, I think at Seacoast for a number of years, it worked out this way. Um, on the dry land days, I might be up in the, in the weight room with the senior swimmers and she was coaching the age group kids. When I moved down from the weight room to the pool for the swimming practice for the senior kids, she would move to the diving well and she was a diving coach as well. She was an all-American diver in college and she had her own diving program at Seacoast as well. And so we didn't necessarily always work together. We're, we're in the same building we're working with the same kind of kids, but we're, we weren't necessarily working together at that point. Um, we worked together on, you know, swim team planning and, and swim meets and things like that. But um, there is never a time where I was like, oh, this is, you know, we've been doing this too long. It's never been that way for us. It's, and, you know, from an outside outsider looking in, knowing how hard it is to find good coaches, knowing that you have one with you, no matter where you go, has also got to be a little bit of a benefit, right? Absolutely. And, and one of the biggest benefits is this. We we had a young lady that um, was at Seacoast when she was seven years old. And I remember Amy telling me, oh, Mike, this, this girl's going to be really good one day. She's going to be good. And I'm like, well, you know, I, in my mind, I'm, I coach kids that are in high school and, and stuff and older. And I'm like, well, seven years old, anything can happen with a seven-year-old between now and then, you know, but Amy was dead on about this young lady. Um, she ended up, I think we practiced three, maybe maybe there was four times a week. It was three practices a week, and there was a stroke correction practice on Saturdays. So I'm going to say she practiced at the most about four hours a week. And when she was a 10 and under, she won all of her events at the LSC championship. Um, when she was in the junior group, she made her first junior time before she got to the senior group. Um, when she was in the senior group, she um, coming out her senior year, she was the top kid in the country in the 500,000 in 1650. And she had three Olympic trial times. So my wife was pretty right about that. <laughs> Made it kind of easy for me. But we've had other kids that come into the group, in my group, and if they're having an issue, say it's a technique issue, I always felt confident that I could send them back to Amy the first, the person who taught them how to do the technique and make any correction that they needed. And it was kind of like, it was just, remember this, remember that, and they'd come back and sure enough, everything would get back in order. So yeah, there is a big advantage to that. There's no doubt. Sounds like it. Um, how about on the personal side, uh, you know, it could be tough to draw boundaries between work and personal because um, you could come home and probably talk swimming all night um, if you allowed that. Is there, has there been any conscious like, all right, we have to leave the pool here or we can talk about it to a certain point and now we got to not talk about it. How do you kind of balance that piece? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we've ever, there might've been for a while, one, one, um, you know, let's draw the line at some point, um, once we got home from swimming that we wouldn't talk about swimming, but there's no matter what, when you're, when you're running the program and, and Amy likes to say that the swim team is like the farm, it's like a farm, you know, the, the animals have to be fed every day. It doesn't matter if it's Christmas. It doesn't matter what day it is. You're still doing something. You're always working. Um, and, but I, I think if there was a time, it would be 
hey, later at night, let's, let's sit on the couch and enjoy a little bit of time before it all starts again tomorrow. But uh, for the most part, we, I don't remember talking too much about that. I, I just think it's, as coaches, it's a, it's a life that you choose, right? It's yeah. just kind of a way of life. And if you look at it for, for coaches, if you're a full-time coach and you look at the amount of time you put into being at the pool on a monthly basis, there might be two days a month that you're not at the pool. And those two days you're not at the pool, you're probably planning for what you're going to do at the pool the next time you're there. So, um, you know, there's maybe two meets during that month. So that week, those weekends are taken up with swimming. And of course, you've trained through the whole week. And so there's very, especially in this time of year coming up here in February and March, almost every weekend is a meet. Um, you accept that. That's part of the job. And um, I think you don't get to do it for a whole number of years unless you really like what you're doing. Yeah. And it's a unique thing, not only for a spouse to understand it, but also share that passion. So it's I mean, a lot the, easier the farm analogy just me. kind of blew my mind a little bit. I think that sounds pretty awesome and accurate too. How did it impact you when your daughters came around and started going to the pool for practice, whether that was swimming or diving? Right. Um, well, I, I, you know, we're in this town, Dover, New Hampshire, and it's like, you know, everybody knows your name there. You know, you can walk into the post office and the bank and the supermarket and every, everybody, they wave to you. They know your name. It's literally that way. Um, and when our first daughter was born, she was at the pool, I think, two or three weeks. And after she was born, she was on a backpack on my, with my wife and my wife was coaching again. And she was just at the pool. Uh, her name was Melissa. Melissa was at the pool with us all the time. Uh, and, and they just grow up around the pool. Um, at some point when she became a little bit older and she was in middle school, you know, a younger kid, maybe she was in, not even middle school, I take that back. She was probably in first or second grade. And most of her buddies in her class had taken lessons and were maybe part of the swim team. And she actually had said to me at some point as a young, young kiddo, hey dad, everybody comes to the pool after school, right? They sure do. <laughs> So we knew everybody, but um, I think they were, you know, it was part of their environment, right? They were just walking around the pool. They were always in a, in a little suit. Um, and um, they both started, they both were on the swim team. And of course, our younger uh, daughter ended up um, diving with my wife as well. And um, we can talk about that in a minute. But I, I think, I think they really enjoyed it. I think they have, all of their friends were on the swim team. To this day, they have great friends that they grew up with on the swim team. And um, I couldn't think of anything more positive about the life that we led there. And uh, for that 26 years that we were at Seacoast, um, um, we made our life there. The, the gentleman that hired us, his name was Bob Fredette. We could never thank him enough for giving us a chance as young coaches to, to lead a program. And um, he had three sons on the team. And I remember when I first started attempting to talk people into going to morning practice, he, his, his two older sons were coming to the morning practice. I'm not sure they wanted to necessarily. I think he wanted to make sure that somebody was there 
And there were a number of days when I would show up for the morning practice at that time. And I was the only one there and I'd, I'd waited out and hopefully hope that somebody would come there, but it didn't happen all the time. Um, but Bob was very instrumental in um, giving us permission to try to be the coaches and the team that we wanted to be. And uh, again, I could never thank him enough for that opportunity. Um, but our kids enjoyed it. And um, eventually um, our younger daughter, Jessica, got into diving with my wife. And we, we, never, we never thought about um, what level our kiddos were going to be. We just wanted them to enjoy the experience. I remember when, when Melissa was graduating, she only had two coaches before she went to college. And all the way up to age 12, she had my wife, Amy. And then from 13 to graduating high school, she had me. And all I really wanted her to do was enjoy the experience in college. And um, she ended up getting into the University of Pennsylvania. Um, there's a great coach there. His name is Mike Schnur. And she got really lucky because that guy was a fun coach. They worked hard. And many of those swimmers, even at the Ivy League level, swam all four years. They enjoyed their experience. So she got lucky there for sure. Um, and my daughter, Jessica, um, she swam all the way through ninth grade uh, competitively. But during that time, she was also diving maybe once or twice a week. And, and she was just enjoying it. She was a gymnast as well. So it, going to diving maybe became a little bit easier or, you know, the same for her. But she got to work with her mom and um, her mom taught her some really good stuff um, all the way to the age of 14. And um, I remember my wife coming over to me. I was at the, I was obviously at the swimming pool end of the facility. And she walked up to me and she said, um, Jessica just did this dive and I think we're in trouble. I said, what do you mean? She says, well, she did this dive where she did uh, a one and a half and she kind of spun in place. Um, and this is something that's hard to teach. And she got this right away. And we're like, oh, okay. So you're telling, telling me she might be good? She says, yeah, I think she's going to be good. And um, she was right about that too. And uh, Jessica ended up getting invited to the National Training Center as a freshman in high school. Um, she went there, I, wouldn't, I, I think in February of her freshman year in high school. So she was 14. And um, she, she, she stayed with two um, host families there. So we were still in New Hampshire while she was in Indianapolis. That's where it was located uh, at, the, at the, the NAT in Indianapolis. And at some point, uh, our older daughter graduated, went to college, which was natural. And at some point, Amy went to live with uh, Jess and help her with diving. And, and so I was home by myself. And um, at some point after so much time had gone by and I kept asking the people at the training center, are you going to keep her in the program? I need to make a decision because I'd like to see my youngest daughter grow up like I did our oldest daughter. And uh, they said, yeah, she's gonna stay here. So, um, so we found a program and, and uh, after 26 years, we moved from New Hampshire. Yeah, I mean, ultimate family story and kind of sacrifice to give up the amazing life that had given you so much out there in New Hampshire, but um, it worked out pretty well as, she not only made it in 2016 to the Olympic team, but also 
in 2021 to Tokyo. So yeah, your wife was right. She's she's good and <laughs> pretty good. She so she ended up she went to IU. It was all American there. Won the won the platform one year. Three time world championship diver, two time Olympian, and and uh, with their synchro partner, they uh, ended up winning a silver medal last time. It's very special. It's very special to see it from that perspective as a father and. You have unique perspective, especially for a club coach, to see two of your swimmers go on to that kind of success in the pool and two decades apart. You just don't hear that a lot. And I think it says a lot about you as a coach. But as swimmers, what do you think the the, the common characteristics were that allowed them to be so successful? And maybe they, they share a, a characteristic with Jessica that you saw, even if you know, it wasn't in the, the racing pool, it was in the diving right, pool. Right, right. Are there, yeah, are there common pieces between them? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that the first comment uh, between Jenny and, and Reagan is that there's, there's, just, there's a high level of intensity. These are swimmers that are willing to work hard. They want to be good. They want to, do, they want to make a commitment and are willing to do the things to be as good as they want it to be. Now, on, in terms of a little difference there, you could see that intensity with Jenny. There was nothing, she wasn't hiding anything. You could see that outwardly. Uh, Reagan, a little bit different, a little bit more inward, but the, the intensity was just the same, really great. Um, if I had to pick um, an area about all three of them, so if you're talking about, and, and Jenny was a great inspiration for our daughter, Jessica. I mean, um, she got to, grow up, Jessica did, grow up around Jenny and, and, and witness that. And I think there was this motivation like, wow, she's a great swimmer. And I, I wonder one day if I could do that kind of thing. But that, that's something, you, and Jessica's been interviewed about that a few different times. But I think for the three of them, the one area that I would say is that they are all in on what they were doing. Um, Jen, Jenny, was going to be a great swimmer. She had that in her head. She was willing to work for it. We saw her compete. Uh, the first time we, my wife and I took her to a, a junior national meet, she was 12. She qualified for the 50 free. So when we got there, and we took her and her brother qualified too, her brother Aaron, and we literally drove from Dover, New Hampshire to Tuscaloosa, Alabama for this junior national meet. It was in the summer. And it took us two days to get there. Um, so Jenny was in the 50 free, her brother was in the 50 free and we were there too. She's 12 years old. Let's just let her experience this meet. This will be a great thing for her to go through and in the future will help her. Right. That was my mindset about this. And so she is seated 77th in the 50 free. She just made the time a couple of weeks before that. And I think I told her, you know, breathe here, breathe there. And I went up in the stands to sit with my with Amy, and uh, we're just going to watch. So as we're watching the heats go by, and she's coming up in a heat or two, you know, there's she start playing with her goggles and stretching and doing all these things that we had never seen her do before. And I we looked at each other and said, "Are you watching this?" Yeah. All of a sudden, there was this amazing seriousness, and she got up, and she swam and ended up seventh from 77. So she finaled 
And so on that, that on the final, of course, now I'm back on the pool deck. <laughs> and she ended up, uh, I think she ended up sixth. She had a senior national time. And uh, I looked at my wife and I said, we, we better not mess this up because <laughs> she's pretty good. <laughs> um, it's hard to mess up Jenny. So anyway, um, we, we start making plans. And, and one of my plans for Jenny was, hey, we're going to go to junior nationals because you have the one event. I'm not going to take you to seniors yet. And you have to make three times unrested and unshaved to go. So I kind of put that carrot out there. So the training and the process was important. And sure enough, that, that next season, she, she made three events. Unread, they were about 50 free, 100 free, and 100 back, I believe. And the next year, I said, all right, now we got to make a couple. I said, now we got to work on the 200. And she, would, she made the 200. So the first year, um, I think she was 15. We went to senior nationals. When she was 14, she went to her first senior national meet. Ended up second place in the 50 to Dara Torres. And she was the rookie of the meet at, at, at that time when they had that award. And um, the next year uh, we worked on the 200 free and we were in LA. And um, I think she had this relatively slow time in the 200 free. She was like a 211 long course, right? So I said, look, we got to work on this event. That's going to be part of the events that, that you'll do. And um, she ended up barely making I think we went to Montreal for a meet. She went 208. I'm oh, that's good. Some progress in season. She barely made the time um, at our local LSC meet. And she wasn't shaved or rested or anything. So I was like, this is very good. So she went to the Nationals that summer and she went 202 and she finaled. That was the final time at that time. Uh, it was 1989. And it qualified her to go to Tokyo for the Pan Pac, Pan Pacific Games. So um, that was really great. That was great. So the intensity is there. And then, you know, in terms that of her Reagan, first international team, sorry to interrupt. Was that the first time she made an international team and it was in the 200? No, no, no. First international team. When she was 14, she made the Pan Ams. Got it. And uh, that was the in, summer before in the, 50. Made, in the 50 and the hundred. She won the, she actually won the gold medal in the 50 against, um, oh, the two great sisters from Costa Rica, and I'm drawing a blank one right now, and uh, Sylvia Pohl, Sylvia and Claudia Pohl. And uh, Sylvia was the star of that meet at the, at, at the uh, Pan Ams that year. And uh, Jen, I think Jenny got a bronze medal in the 100 of that meet, and she won the 50 and beat Sylvia Pohl there. Uh, but that was the next year, and she ended up making the 200 free and, um, and swam the 50 and the 100 there as well. Um, the Reagan's first big splash was when she came to our team, she was 13. She had just turned 13 and, um, decided to take her to the junior national meet. And, um, that was the first year that they had the futures meets that came out and you weren't allowed, if you had an Olympic trial time at that time, you weren't allowed to compete at the futures meet, which I thought was a shame because we had nine or 10 other kids that were in that meet that qualified. And um, so she wouldn't get to swim with her teammates. She had to go with the old guy to the, the junior meet in San Antonio. Um, and my wife took the other ones to, uh, I think that would ended up at Purdue for that first uh, futures championship. So anyway, when we got there, she's 13. I think um, she swam the hundred fly, did okay. Maybe right, right around her time. 
She funneled in the 200 back, but maybe not as fast as she did to get there. And then it was the 100 back was her last event there. And she finaled. And I think she was seated third, maybe fourth, third or fourth. I want to say third going into the final. And um, my thought process was, all right, you know, we talked about the race a little bit. And, hey, let's see what happens here. Again, it's the same observation thought process I had with about Jenny. Let's see what happens here. There is no fear. She was first at the 50. Sam Kendricks was doing the announcing. I was, it was, it's always, it was always fun to hear Sam. And um, he says, that's Reagan Smith from Riptide. And she's, and she's out. You know? And she ended up second. And, um, and, but she's 13 years old. And I thought to myself, there's no doubt she's the real deal. Let's not mess this up either. <laughs> So, Does it take a competition to tell if they're the real deal? I mean, it's something. Oh, I that think maybe that. I think that absolutely. Oh yeah, I think competition just, you know, raises their level even more. For Jenny and Reagan, I absolutely believe that's true. Um, and in, in terms of the all-in comment, and um, just recently, last month or so, um, Jessica decided she got a call from her synchro partner from the Olympics. Jessica was kind of staying in shape. She was diving a couple of days a week, but pretty much one or three meter you know, springboard, no platform. She hadn't done platform since the Olympics. She got one call from her synchro partner and said, hey, do you think you want to do this again? And she was, and that's all it took. So she's, she's now in training again. She's back at IU. She's kind of getting in shape again for it. And then she's going to end up in Arizona where her secret partner is, Delaney Schnell, and she's trying this again. So I think if you're going to do something and you're that level, you only the, the, the only thing you could possibly think of is I need to be all in to do this. And so she, the only thing about that is that she gave up her job <laughs> because diving takes up a lot of training time. But, but I understand, but we, you know, you understand that I, I think from my wife and my perspective, this is really an amazing thing. I guess do it while you can. Absolutely. You only get so many chances to be at that level of greatness in your life. And a lot of people don't even get that chance. Um, right. Even if they're all in, is there, I mean, there's gotta be some other swimmers who you've seen that are all in oh, absolutely. and, you know, just no didn't make it to that level. Um, and I guess we kind of already alluded to it. It's just that instinct in the races themselves. Are there any other differences that you saw in the three Olympians in your life that kind of separate them from the other people who are just as committed and probably oh, as yeah. passionate? I mean, we've had, Olymp- there's no doubt we've had Olympic trial swimmers um, over the years, in addition to Jenny and Reagan, for sure. Um, you know, I, I guess if we were capable of putting a percentage on everything, then it might be easier to figure out, but it's hard to do so, right? Here's your ability, ability level. Here's your work ethic. Here's your commitment level. Blah, blah, blah. There's so many different factors, right? Here are your parents. You know, what do you get from that? And, and um, here's the parking that you've received at this level and at this level. There's so many different factors that are involved. Um, but for them, um, I, I think it was this high desire to try to be the best they could be. You know, I actively talked to Jenny before she went to Stanford about breaking that, the world record. That was an East German, I believe, tainted world record. 
And I said, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you're going to be able to break that record one day. And sure enough, that happened. Um, I, I, I saw in Reagan that same ability. She, she has a very high pride level in her training. Her training is important to her. Um, she wants to be successful with her training. And there are, there are some moments in training that I thought, this young lady is going to break the American record in the 200-yard back. And then a little while later, she can break the world record in long course. So we, you know, those, those things were definitely thoughts in my head about them. And, and they went out and accomplished that. How does that level swimmer change your coaching? I mean, is it possible to like keep your your training philosophy the same? I mean, what kind of impact does it have first? I mean, it's got to impact a lot of different areas, but first, just your your day-to-day training philosophy. How does it change when you have that level of athlete in the water every day? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, in Jenny's case, um, we had a lot of young ladies that were senior national level like her. We had, we had senior national guys. Um, training together was a real big positive thing for them. That really worked out. Um, but, you know, earlier I said that I think it's important that you challenge swimmers. Um, when you have that level of swimmer in your program, they challenge you back. They challenge the coach, in my case, to come back to the training pool with an with the proper challenges that they need to become the swimmer that they want, want to be. So, um, I mean, I would just, I would think of the, these training sets and say, okay, how close can I, you know, without being absolutely ridiculous, right? How close can I get her to, to have a breakthrough today without making the set ridiculous? I mean, you, you can think of something where there's going to be failure, but that's not, that's not the point here. The point is, to be successful doing the most challenging thing that you've done to that, up to, to that date. And um, there are a lot of, let's get under swims, get under, get under this time, you know, again and again and again. Um, and can you give us some up. examples? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there is a set and you know how, I, you know how the, the uh, pro meets go, right? Um, they, she, in, in Reagan's case, she was a she's a great flyer and backstroke, and she would swim on one day. She might swim the two hundred back and then the hundred fly. Another day she might swim the two hundred fly and then the hundred back, right? And I remember going to, out to California um, to um, uh, where, where were you? Santa Clara, and she had literally ten to twelve minutes between these events. So I said, All right, "We're gonna." I started to think of sets that would help her handle that situation right so and I, wrote, I have this set we did this that was initially going to be five times around and it was it was a 650s fly followed by a 150 back kick um get this is in a short course pool and with a get under time uh, maybe it was 150 at the time and then a 250 250 backstroke for time right and we're going to do that five times so we went and I was looking for her to be as close to 230 or maybe under 230 in the 250 back. So in the first three rounds, I think she's 234, 235. The butterflies were challenging as well, right? Butterfly 50s. So 
uh, we get to the fourth, we get through four rounds actually. And I, I think she got down to 233. And I said, I, I said, look, I don't, on the fifth round, we're not going to do the 50s fly. We're not going to do the kick. We're just going to go a 200 back for time. So we're going to get rid of the fifth round. And so we got rid of the fifth round. I gave her a minute before we did it. And she went 157 in the 200 back from a push at the end of that practice. And I said, that's what I was looking for. And that she was very capable of hitting those kind of swims in practice. Um, a few years down the line, her, I believe her maybe her best push time in a 200 yard back was 153. She's been 51 high, 51 plus in 100 back in practice. Um, these are <laughs> these are more than signs of I think she might be good. These are signs of hey I think she can break a world record. <laughs> but it takes some, like you said, I, I really appreciated what you said about setting them up to be successful at that level where they don't know for sure if they can get it, but you know, maybe they can and not beyond where you might break them, you know, you might break them and convince them otherwise, or even putting them up to that challenge on a day where they've had some cumulative fatigue or something happen outside the pool that keeps them in a different place. And that absolutely happens. Specific planning as a coach, right? That does happen. And, and, uh, you know, there's those days where their fatigue is there. And, and some, so some days there isn't that great success, but if the effort is there, there's still something that you're gaining. Right. But you're, I mean, I, I remember we, we do this set where we kind of do, we'll call it random sprinting. And um, we just kind of do all these very short things all the time. And uh, I'll just do them off the top of my head. And we, we, we might do that for an hour. Um, and one time we were in Colorado Springs and this was after well, I'll talk about right before she set the world record in, in 2019, we were in Florida doing a training trip and we had a, a an AM practice that was uh, pretty challenging. I think it was 8,000 meters in the morning. And I believe that it was a, a pretty hard freestyle set. So in the afternoon, we came back and it was a short afternoon and we did a, a, a short warm up and the set was um, five rounds where you do two 100s for time and uh, a 200 pull, um, just distance per stroke. And I said to Reagan, let's do the odd rounds backstroke. All right, let's do the odd rounds back. You can do whatever strokes you want on the even rounds for the hundreds. And the hundreds were on, you know, it was a good interval, it was on 150. So this wasn't a tight interval. And um, I, if I remember right, the, the first two 100 backs were 104s, the, la- the next two were 103s, and the last two were 102s. And I thought, wow, that I'm not sure there's too many people out there doing that, you know. And and um, and um, anyway, I remember uh, she went to the camp, and uh, Greg Meehan was her group coach, and he had texted me saying, Mike, she's she's pushing 102 <laughs> from her back. I said, that's good. Let her do that. <laughs> that's what she's been doing. Um, and, and then of course. She got to that meet and, and uh, you know, crushed the 200 back and 100 back, of course, and and uh, just had great swims there. Um, back later that fall, after the world records, we we gone. We went to the Colorado Springs and we did that same kind of little set. And at the end of a practice there at, at altitude, she pushed a 101, 100 meter back. And and again, I I, I think you have to find ways to get there, right? Um, and it's a great combination of you know, how much endurance work are you doing? 
how much speed work are you doing? How much do the details matter underwater? You know, your kick counts and your stroke counts and all those things like that. And um, I think Reagan has a, a pride in that. I think that matters to her and that, that she trains well because she knows that if she keeps training well over a period of time, that that process is going to get, you know, yield some very good results. Was the process different, you know, the details, the, you know, percentages in the equation when you had to account for a 50 freestyle with Jenny? <sighs> Jenny loved the 50 free. You know, yeah. I, so you want to, you want to, so her set, I can give you a set that she did. Yes, please. It, by the way, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how much I gave Jenny at any time she could get up and really knock out a, an amazingly fast 50 free. And I remember this one time at the end of a long course practice, our best guy on the team says to Jenny, hey, I'll race you in a 50. I said to him, I don't know if you want to do that. So she said, do you want to race me in a 50? And, and you know, he's an incredibly hard worker. So I'm pretty sure he was dead from the training. However, she beat him by body length, I think. <laughs> and um, anyway. The set that, that you, you know, I think that we're talking about in terms of detail is um, on a Saturday afternoon, we would do stroke lanes and her set, this is a meat and potato set of eight one hundreds uh, from the block. There was a breath control um, requirement and she had to, you know, not breathe here or there in and out of walls. You know, the first so many strokes, the last so many strokes to the finish. And then she had a, a goal time. And if she missed any of those parameters, then it, that swim didn't count towards the eight 100s, okay? And um, she probably had to do 100 easy or 150 easy after each one. And I, I think we went every six or seven minutes. So inevitably she would, um, she might miss the first one and I'd say, oh, you didn't make the time standard. Like, good job on the breath control, but, and uh, so, so I think that would motivate her a little bit. And then she made the next eight in a row. And she was going amazingly fast. And every wall and every finish was the correct um, number of strokes and the correct breath control. So it, I think like anything else, you, you, have to, um, you have to plan it out. You know, that way, when I, when I watched Katie Ledecky swim at 1500, Katie takes the same number of strokes every single 50 through the entire 1500. She could probably swim that with her eyes closed and do the flip turn and not worry about her feet, where they're gonna land on the wall. Same number of dolphin kicks, break out 40 strokes or 20 cycles every time. And I think that's important for any race that you do. So if it's the 50 free um, and you're Jenny Thompson, you gotta know the number of strokes, you gotta know, um, if, if and when you're taking a breath. I'm, when she was in high school, I had a, a coach from another team say, I want my group to watch Jenny swim the 50. How many breaths is she going to take? I said, well, I don't, you know, she might take one up and one back, or she might just take one on the second 25 as a 50 yard free. And so she swam the 50 and she didn't take any breaths, which we, which we had been working on. So he came over to me after she saw me, he says, I, I thought she, was going to take a breath. I said, yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> Evidently, we don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it's just, it's fascinating for me to hear. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like you said it from the beginning with Jenny as a 12 year old, I better not mess this up. And there's just something that's there that was, you know, a decision that she had made, but the opportunities that you presented her with and the details that she was challenged with. And I always say this to my swimmers, like, uh, I, I can't change you. I can just give you the opportunity. Um, and it seems like that really was a catalyst to their paths, but at the same time, you know, they have that it factor or they don't, right? That, that and they're just highly motivated. Yeah. Both highly motivated. Um, I mean, if I'm speaking about my daughter, Jessica, there, or any of them, there are some things that are just unacceptable, all right? They know that that's not them and they're going to come back and be that much better the next time they train. So highly motivated people for sure. And with the ability to, to do great things. Awesome. I really appreciate that insight. And I think the, the listeners will too. Let's transition. Just got a couple questions left. I thank you so much for your time here. Um, I think it's important for coaches to also hear um, from other coaches, things that they do away from the pool. What activities do you enjoy doing that don't have anything to do with swimming? <laughs> well, um, I'll talk about my wife first and then it'll get to me. She, my wife is amazing. Amy can go and swim masters. She can swim at the pool. She can coach at the pool. She's our meet director for our club. She spends an enormous amount of time at the pool. I am amazed at that. I need to get away from the pool. Um, one day when I retire and I'm not a coach, I will go back and swim in the pool. I will enjoy it. But right now, I, for me, I just can't do that. So the only thing from my perspective is I just need to get away from the pool and enjoy my time away. I enjoy sports. I watch a lot of sports. I like to read. I like to watch videos. Um, um, that's it for me, though. And I, I probably should exercise a little bit more. <laughs> that's I, fair. I think that's a good message. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably should do more of that. But yeah, there's there's got to be other things to kind of make sure that there is some kind of balance. So, um, I, Mike, I really appreciate your time here. I know we went a little over an hour, but I think that it was well worth it. Some amazing stories, some awesome insight from one of the best who's ever done it. So thank you. I know I learned a lot and uh, we appreciate your time. Best of luck here moving forward. Thank you. Best of luck to you. And thank you, Garrett. I really did enjoy it. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim podcasts on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.